Which Muppet do you most identify with and why? Well, see, I should be saying one of our strong female role models around the world, but I would have to say Grover because <laughs> I love his quirky sense of humor. Yeah. And I have a rather quirky sense of humor, so it would be Grover. Well, sorry, Elmo. That was Sherry Rollins Weston, president of Sesame Street Workshop, the nonprofit educational organization behind Sesame Street. I'm Michael Revo, and this is Blazing Trails, a podcast from Salesforce Studios. And I'm here with my podcast partner, Rachel Levin. Hello, Rachel. Hey, Michael. Listen, I'm upset for Elmo here, you know? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's mostly, he's usually the number one. And, and Sherry's telling us not even Abby Cadabby made it, you know? She's a Grover girl, right? I like to see Grover, you know, getting a little love. So, Who's your favorite Muppet? I need to ask you that. Who's my favorite Muppet? It's probably Big Bird. I got to go with the Big Bird. I mean, he's pretty amazing. <laughs> I mean, I just see him and it makes me happy. Although Snuffleupagus, I think he's a runner up for sure. He that name alone. Ex- excellent as well. Yeah. I, you know, for all of us who some days are just shuffling along, <laughs> really, really makes us feel, you know, accepted. Uh huh. Uh huh. No judgment. No judgment. And that's kind of what Sesame Street's all about, right? Inclusion. That's and right. The capital I. Uh, and I think we learned so much about that with your conversation with her today that, you know, it's a great TV show that educates us and our kids, but it also has this incredible reach with this educational programs they do all around the world, including in places like Syria and, well, before in Afghanistan. And it's just amazing the work that they do. You know, and Sherry's had quite a career journey from the White House to Sesame Street. Sherry has had a fascinating career as a trailblazing leader. She talks to us about mentorship, about leadership, about communication. It's a fascinating interview. So let's just jump right into it and get into my conversation with Sherry Rollins Weston, president of Sesame Workshop. Welcome to the show, Sherry. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. So, you know, you've had a pretty interesting career path. At one point, you worked at the White House and the Bush administration. 41. Bush 41. Showing my age. Okay, yes. just to be clear. Just to be clear. And at ABC and lots of other interesting opportunities. So now, as the president of the Sesame Workshop, tell me about that journey working from politicians to Muppets. I hadn't thought of it that way, from politicians to Muppets. So it's probably very similar, right? I had great experience. You know, it, it's not a straight line. I guess, if, can you tell me how you got to Sesame Street, right? But I will say that because Sesame Workshop is a nonprofit organization, and you know most people are not aware of the depth and breadth of our work. They think of it as an iconic domestic television show. Right. And in fact, we do amazing work around the world, um, reaching vulnerable children with quality early education through so many different means. But consequently, needing to raise the funds, mm-hmm. needing to be really aware of policies and international trends and issues means that my background in you know public service mm-hmm. has been a huge asset in terms of navigating the way for Sesame Workshop. Right. So I really you know draw upon my time in ABC in terms of media, mm-hmm. but also my time in the public sector and nonprofit sector. And I, I really do feel like I was meant to end up at Sesame. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it makes me think about a question when you say that you're sort of, this is where you were destined to be. Was there anything early in your career that really changed the trajectory of where you were going or, or sort of a pivotal moment? Absolutely, absolutely. I adopted a little girl from China when I was at ABC. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so now I was a new mom. Yeah. 
And ABC was a wonderful place to work. Um, I took her with me everywhere. Half my staff was in LA. We'd go back and forth. But it was a time also that Disney had purchased ABC recently, mm-hmm. and they were going to start a children's channel. Mm-hmm. It's going to be called ABZ. Mm-hmm. And um, I was being asked to work on that, to lead that effort, which was so exciting as a new mom mm-hmm. to also now be focused on children's media. Right. And then they pulled the plug, and that went away. Mm. But I think it was all about being a, a mother. And, you know, I loved my work, but it really gave me an interest in children's media and how important quality children's media was. Mm-hmm. And that's what eventually led me to Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. Well, it's so interesting about that was a different era in children's media. And now we're in the middle of a lot of controversy around what Instagram kids and what's happening in children's media. I'm curious how you're thinking about that with so many different outlets and different ways to get media to kids and for them to interact with that. How are you thinking about that at Sesame and what role that plays and has it, has it changed? Well, absolutely. I mean, when we started, you know, Sesame was created in 1969 mm-hmm. when, we, when we launched, and it was the first preschool program on television. And the whole premise was, could we use television to teach? Right. And it was a huge experiment that worked. And this was part of the war on poverty, the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you think about today, it's that need is as great as ever. Right. A global pandemic. Yeah. 1.6 billion children out of school, you know, not having formal learning, and the opportunity to reach them through quality media, mm-hmm. especially um, to provide early education when they don't have access. But I would say that it's it's now any way we can reach them. Mm-hmm. It's obviously not just broadcast television. Mm-hmm. It's everything digital. It's high tech. It's low tech. It's WhatsApp. I mean, any means we have to reach children and their families. Mm-hmm. And so that's changed tremendously. Mm-hmm. You know, I've noticed Sesame in some different places out in the, out in the world. Now, in fact, I have a three and a half year old. Oh, who, you do? Who You're got, in our sweet spot. Uh, yes, and she loves Sesame and and Daniel Tiger, and you know, she loves a lot of that programming. Who's who's your favorite character on Sesame? On Sesame, um, she's probably an Elmo <laughs> fan. Well, that's because Elmo is also three and a half, so they, she can totally relate. They are they yeah. are right there yeah. together. Yeah. Well, she got some Bombas socks as a gift, and they had Sesame characters on. I love those socks. They, the, I, if I could fit into the socks, I would try to borrow them. But tell me about that in terms of extent. You know, the importance of brand is we we know that from the business world. But how do you navigate that with something as sort of precious as Sesame Street is? Well, you know, you you try to always be true to the brand and to the brand um, attributes mm-hmm. and. You know, I think one of the things that is very unique about Sesame Workshop is we are a nonprofit. We always have been. Mm-hmm. It was started with grants from the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie Corporation, and the Department of Education. And we created this human, I say we, but, you know, Joan Gans Cooney and her colleagues created this tremendous successful experiment mm-hmm. in terms of um, quality early education with so many studies that show that they succeeded mm-hmm. in using the medium to teach and helping children arrive at school ready to learn. Uh But the characters, the Muppets, I mean, I always have thought that's our secret sauce. They Uh are so engaging, just as you pointed out, that your three-and-a-half-year-old loves Elmo. And so unlike a lot of nonprofits, we have the opportunity to license our intellectual property, those characters, to give us a a stream of earned revenue, Uh all of which goes straight back into 
our educational content, our mission. Mm-hmm. Um, but it helps enormously not only to engage children mm-hmm. and bring the brand into their lives in multiple ways, right. but also to support our work in places like Bangladesh, India, South Africa, mm-hmm. until recently Afghanistan, you know, where we don't have the opportunity for licensed product or distribution fees, but through philanthropic support, mm-hmm. we can do what we do here in the United States for mm-hmm. particularly vulnerable communities. Yeah, and I think finding new ways for the message to reach kids, and even if it is at that really top brand level, I think an interesting combination of being able to have it raise funds for the organization and then also be in the marketplace, you know, so that, because it, 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 again, it's got to be so challenging with so many outlets now. Well, absolutely. There's, you know, when, when Sesame started, it was, you know, the first preschool program and, you know, now there are hundreds. So right. there's there's right. a much more crowded marketplace, if you will. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think the, the fact that we were there early, yeah. that we've been here for 52 years, you yeah. know, there's an incredible staying power to this brand. And I think it's because we've always remained relevant. Yeah, It's not only that, you know, when you think of Sesame Street seasons or broadcast, you'll have the most recent celebrity or musician and the parodies. So it will be very contemporary. Right. But at the same time, the fact that we have addressed the most pressing issues mm-hmm. facing children, mm-hmm. and those change over time. Mm-hmm. I don't mean what a child needs for their healthy development changes, but parental incarceration, mm-hmm. displacement, the number of refugee children, Mm -hmm. um, parental addiction. I mean, the issues that were not something that were as prevalent at the time. Right. We watch those trends, we see those issues, Mm -hmm. and we have a really unique opportunity to help children and families cope with those. And Mm -hmm. in large part, because these characters are so trusted, Mm -hmm. and we do so in a way that is age appropriate and hopeful and really looks at issues through the lens of a child. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, tell me about, this is something we talk about at Salesforce a lot around um, our core values and trust being our number one value. And right now that's needed more than ever. We can see across so many different institutions. Tell me about how inside the organization you use those core values around Sesame to make decisions about what topics you're going to cover, what characters are going to come in, what, you know, any anything that you need to do on a day-to-day basis to make decisions. How do those core values play into that? Well, I'll talk first about our mission. Our mission is to help children everywhere grow smarter, stronger, and kinder. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like a really clever marketing (laughs) tagline, but it but it's not. It is it is truly how we approach all of our content. Smarter in terms of the cognitive, the academic basics, literacy and numeracy, stronger in terms of resilience, health, and then kinder in terms of empathy and understanding and respect for differences. And in terms of values, I agree, you know, Sesame Workshop, like Salesforce, trust is the most important. Yeah. But we decide what issues because we're always looking through the lens of a child. Mm-hmm. And again, as a nonprofit and not a for-profit organization, we're looking at the needs of children. Mm-hmm. And that's what determines where we focus. Mm-hmm. So think of last year, and, you know, we have a lot of different amazing initiatives, but we stopped everything to pivot to COVID response. Mm-hmm. Creating content to reach children who didn't have school, but also creating unique content to help them cope with a pandemic, with health messages, hygiene messages, help address the social and emotional needs of children and families, giving what they were coping with, and mm-hmm. creating all new content 
Then when George Floyd was murdered, we really stopped and said, wait a minute, this is a huge part of Sesame's DNA. Mm-hmm. You know, we were the first multiracial children's show. Mm-hmm. We have always stood for inclusion, acceptance, understanding, but it didn't feel like enough. And we really made a conscious decision to deal with racism head on, mm-hmm. not just inclusion. Right. And have created the first, to our knowledge, the first preschool curriculum to deal with racism for young children. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, designed to help children celebrate their own identity, but also to stand up, to be upstanders is what we call it. But, mm-hmm. you know, that's something I'm really proud of. Mm-hmm. I was talking earlier, we were we were talking about how sort of life can just happen. <laughs> and, you know, you know, I got a job and I stick with it and it's fine, as opposed to being more intentional about what is it that I really want to do? What are my values? What are... What do I want to accomplish? How have you looked at that and has that changed over time? What's that journey been for you? You know, it, it's funny because I have a, a group of friends from college and we get together. We used to get together for a period. We would get together once a year and then it sort of be every few years. Yeah. And we did this silly thing where we would write down our goals so that we would then read them to each other the next year, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I remember finding these notes that I'd kept. Yeah. And this would have been probably when I was either, you know, just right after the White House, perhaps ABC, but I was saying I wanted to find ways to give back or how to do. I don't remember writing that. I do always remember feeling it. Mm -hmm. But I also think becoming a mother, adopting Lily, I was so excited about focusing on children. Mm -hmm. And I wanted my day job and my new role as parent to be connected. Mm -hmm. And so I just, you know, was so excited to be able to work in something that was focused on children mattered to me tremendously, mm-hmm. had my own little focus group at home, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I do feel like I've always been driven to look for ways to give back, but I am so grateful. I mean, it's a privilege to be able to work at Sesame. And yeah. and when you, when you understand the depth and breadth of our work, that we're reaching children in, you know, refugee camps in Jordan, or my last trip before COVID was to Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh, mm-hmm. where we've created programming for Rohingya children. Mm-hmm. And Oh my gosh, to see these children delight because you're creating Muppets. Mm-hmm. And and to have the first Muppets that look like them, Nora right. and Aziz, we created Rohingya Muppets. Yeah. They've never seen themselves reflected in media. Yeah. And that is just so rewarding. Yeah. To see that you can make a difference for children the world over, that you can bring hope and joy in places where there are so many challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, we're steeped in research, so we know when we can have real impact. Mm-hmm. And when we don't, we pivot, we innovate, and we look for how we can do better. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm curious about how that works when you go to other markets and other places that are not what you know and you know what we as Americans know. And I know so many other companies have you know looked at really fast growth, and then you have all these unintended consequences that happens when you don't sort of know the local custom and the local places. How does that work at Sesame? How do you partner? What does that look like? Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, um, I love this story, but Joan Gantz Cooney, who created Sesame Street, said that she thought she was creating the quintessential American show. Uh-huh. Here it was on a stoop in Harlem, right. multiracial cast. Yeah. And within a year, Germany, then Mexico and Brazil all reached out and wanted their own versions of Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. And that's what started what we called our international Mm co-productions. It wasn't exporting the U.S. version of the show and dubbing it. Mm -hmm. It was going to each of those places, 
finding the right partners, creating local productions with indigenous Muppets, if you will, like Mm -hmm. that represented those children, you know, their culture, their language. Mm -hmm. And so while the model was the same, it was all about making sure it was local. Mm -hmm. And whether we're in, you know, Afghanistan or India or South Africa, you know, or Bangladesh, it's local. Right. You know, Bangladesh is Sisimpur. Afghanistan was Bache Simpson, which meant Sesame Garden and Dari and Pashtu. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's a child watching does not think this is a U.S. Sesame Street. Right. And it sounds like that's from the very beginning. Yes. It was set up so that we way. have things we can bring to the table in terms of building capacity and, and sharing a model, but we're always listening and learning from the experts on the ground. Mm-hmm. You know, we start with an advisory with local educators to develop the curriculum. Mm-hmm. We've had our Muppeteers from India go to Bangladesh to train. Like, it's a wonderful process, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But it is, in success, it's truly seen as local. Mm-hmm. I mean, now, now there are challenges because we don't always have the funding to do an, a complete production in every country. Right. And so one of the things we're trying to do today is figure out how we can make more global blocks that are easily adaptable, mm-hmm. you know, can easily be expanded to various countries, particularly for children in crisis settings, mm-hmm. um, where it still is reflective of their cultures, but we're doing so in a more economic, efficient way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I would love to know what's most challenging about your work right now, because the mission is amazing. The results are incredible. But all of us have this on the day-to-day. You know, what's challenging right now? Well, a couple of things. It's always challenging to raise the funds because not that people don't love Sesame, but they often don't realize we're a nonprofit because they see that, you know, Tickle Me Elmo. Right. Or, um, you know, so (laughs) it's not that they don't love us, but they don't necessarily think we need that funding and support. So that's always a challenge. And you have to tell them and educate them again to the other things we're doing that people may not know to understand, you know, that need. Right. Um, the second thing I would say, you know, obviously during the pandemic, we partner with local service providers on the ground. So let me give you an example. In the Syrian response region, we partner with the International Rescue Committee. We create an all-new local Arabic production, Ahlan Simpson. Mm-hmm. Two new Muppets, one left his home, becomes best friends with another So you have this being broadcast throughout the region. Mm -hmm. Then by partnering with the IRC, we're creating content, storybooks, curriculum, digital, you know, using everything from WhatsApp to mobile Mm -hmm. to provide content for them to use in learning centers, home visits, healthcare centers, so that you get a surround sound. Mm -hmm. You get the powerful brand, Ahlan Simpson, which means welcome sesame in Arabic. And then you get this incredible content with direct service providers using that as tools. Mm-hmm. During COVID, so much of that had to shut down. Right. We weren't, they weren't able to do home visits or mm-hmm. learning centers. So that has been a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. But I'm really proud of how we've pivoted to look for other means of still reaching children and families, again, through WhatsApp, you name it, basic mm-hmm. phone calls. It's, it's been everything you can think of that mm-hmm. would would allow us to still give those tools to parents mm-hmm. who no longer have teachers or schools for their children. But I'm so proud of how innovative we've been in doing that. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, I would just say there are not enough hours in the day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you talk about the impact internationally, it feels like, and, and I think at this time right now, where thinking about sort of America's role in the world and that's been changing over these past years, I mean, this is such a powerful voice for uh, 
not just breaking sort of American values, of course, but the, these key ideas and what was started here to bring it out to the world. Do you look at it that way as, as a, an important export for us? Oh, listen, I, you know, one of the reasons USAID has, has funded so many of our international projects in developing countries is because they understand the value of bringing early education to countries. We don't like to think of it as exporting American values. Right. But yes, I mean, there's certain values that that are inherent in everything we do in terms of gender equity, Mm -hmm. um, in terms of sort of just providing equity for access to education. And we have this ability to reach children, many of whom have no other access to quality education. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't really think of it, but uh, but listen, a lot of people refer to it as soft diplomacy, and I agree with that. You know, what what better way to help those countries than to provide access to education for Mm -hmm. young children? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was just curious what the... From the other country's perspective, I imagine it may be more welcoming to that than to other, you know, initiatives that are out yeah, there. Yeah, no, and we we have not gone places where we're not welcome yeah. or invited. Mm-hmm. Um, and we often work with the ministries of education. Mm-hmm. I mean, Afghanistan is heartbreaking because we were there for ten years. Yeah, and incredible impact on girls' education. The lead Muppet, a little girl named Zuri, who wears her hijab and her school uniform, and you know, is such a powerful role model for young Afghan girls and boys. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of research showing how we were changing attitudes mm-hmm. of young boys about the importance of girls going to school. Mm-hmm. And that was funded by the U.S. State Department for 10 years. Mm-hmm. So even though it was local Afghan, you know, right now that's not happening. Right, it's just stopped. It's not happening. That really is heartbreaking. It is. Yeah. Okay, so let's change the okay. <laughs> topic a little bit. Thank you for that. Those stories are, are wonderful, though. I want to talk a little bit about mentorship. We're okay. talking with all of our guests today, both as a mentor as a, and as a mentee. It's interesting you reference that story about your friends and writing your goals. Right, right. They're sort of that's mentorship of each other there in a way. What role has that played in your career? Well, you know, I'm old enough that I did not have women bosses mm-hmm. in my 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still had some wonderful mentors who were men who, who were you know, really good to me and for me, and that I learned a great amount from. But I do participate in the um, the Vital Voices Fortune State Department Mentorship Program, mm-hmm. you know, which came out of this conference. Yeah, and I've done it for many years, and so that's been when I have been formally a mentor. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to think that I help the women in my at Sesame, and I have so many fantastic women who work for me and young women. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that official mentorship role, which I've done for over 10 years, and each time would be a mentee from a different country, mm-hmm. and they go through this process of selection, so they're superstars, right? Yeah. I would say that I absolutely had to have learned more from them than they could have ever learned from me. Mm-hmm. And they were so inspiring. And, you know, and I really do think Selfishly, it's been more beneficial to me than it possibly could have been for them. But, but, and I've kept up with every one of them. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard because I'm so busy. And each year I think, how am I going to have time to do this one more time? Yeah. And, you know, fortunately, I'll set them up with other people at the workshop too, so that it's not just shadowing me. Yeah. But I always end up being so glad I did it because mm-hmm. it, it forces me to take the time. Mm-hmm. And you realize that you really can benefit from and hopefully help others. I don't feel like I'm mentor worthy. I don't feel like, like I still think I still think I'm the, the 
27-year-old. You know, I was always young for my jobs, and all of yeah. a sudden I realized I'm not. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm the old one. <laughs> but but so I don't think of myself as being this mentor. But then when you do, you realize, oh, my gosh, I have so much more yeah. that I can contribute mm-hmm. or that I have experienced than I realize. Mm-hmm. And what do you find in those exchanges in those conversations that is the most valuable? I mean, it might not be. Well, it's it. they want so much to know about how did you balance this? I hate the word balance for work and home because yeah. I don't think there's any such thing. But, but how did you navigate certain things with your family, with your children, with your husband? It, mm-hmm. I, I ended up always connecting so much on a personal level yeah. and realizing they didn't you know, once they felt really comfortable with me, that they didn't have other people to ask right. some of those questions. I mean, that question about balance, because that comes up in a, in a lot of these conversations. And I've heard that too, that, oh, it doesn't exist, which can be a positive or a negative. I'm curious what you think that question really is about. Well, you know, there are a lot of people who get offended because men are not asked that question. It's always women. Right. Like, But it is hard as a working mother. And, you know, there are societal expectations where it you know, let's be honest, often the mother is the one thinking about the school play or the bake sale, et cetera. And, right. you know, the Sunda Duckett, who's one of the most powerful women, she was named in this last issue, and she just became CEO of TIAA. Mm-hmm. And she um, is one of only four black women to become CEO of a Fortune 500 company. But mm-hmm. she was on the panel earlier this uh, morning or on the on the stage. Yeah. And, and she was great on this issue. She said, I don't believe there's any th- such thing as perfect balance between work and home. Mm-hmm. But she said, if you look at it as a continuum, mm-hmm. that I want to be a great executive and a great mother, and I'm going, these are my goals and priorities, you just can't do it all perfectly at the same time. Right. So there are times you're being better at your job. Yeah. There are times you are you know, more focused on your children. Mm-hmm. There are times you don't have the time to be, a, but she said, but when I am... I'm all there, mm-hmm. knowing that you know certain times one is going to take not not um, preference necessarily, but just is a is a greater demand. But look at it as a continuum across the board, and I think that's so fair. Yeah, you know, you, because what we do is if we think we're trying to do it all, we just feel like we're bad at everything. Right, like I'm not being you know as good a mother as I should, and I'm not being is good at an executive. You know, so I, I do think that we tend to be too hard on ourselves, and if we can you know, sort of look at it more broadly, it's probably healthy. Right. And I think it's having those boundaries, which is so hard to do. Well, listen, one of the things I feel really badly about at work right now is because, you know, many of us really have been working seven days a week and and all hours. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to model that for the younger women who work for me. Right. But in my role right now, I wouldn't be able to get it done if I didn't. Yeah. Fortunately, my children are older now, so I, you know, I was able to really prioritize when they were younger, and I think I did a good job of trying to carve out more time. You know, one of the things that I know we're, we're coming up on time, but I just wanted to follow up on this is we're talking about this idea called a digital HQ. This is sort of a Salesforce idea that I think all of us are living. That now there is this digital HQ and managing the communications and the just the as a human to keep yep. up with it is is no, so I mean, challenging. It, it makes us so efficient and yet it it just is overwhelming. Right. But I will say that I in spite of me saying all this, I'm really proud at Sesame Workshop that we have spent so much time during this past year focusing on the health and well-being of our employees and mm-hmm. looking for solutions and doing research to understand how they're doing and what the concerns are, mm-hmm. um, both from a health and wellness and a DE&I perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think that is so important. Mm-hmm. 
And I think it really is going to come down to all the individuals in an organization. Now it's so distributed that everybody's really going to have to be learning and paying attention to this. Okay, I have one more question. You know, the show over the years in Sesame has tackled so many difficult topics. Uh, you introduced a Muppet that's autistic and so many more examples. What can CEOs and business leaders learn from Sesame Street in terms of empathy and creating more empathetic and inclusive company cultures? Well, you know, that reminds me of a one of my favorite quotes that President Obama said that a lot of adults could learn from watching Sesame Street again, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of understanding and empathy. And so, listen, I think that's what we do so well. Mm -hmm. And by giving children these incredible role models where they can see themselves, whether that's Julia, the first autistic Muppet. Mm -hmm. um, and it, one of the things I love about that initiative, it was called See Amazing in All Children for Families with Children with Autism, mm -hmm. was the goals were both to create content to help families with children with autism, to make everyday moments easier, but also to help neurotypical children have a better understanding of what makes Julia different and right. what they have in common. Mm -hmm. So not only could autistic children see themselves in Julia and feel representative and feel that they're less alone, but others could have a greater understanding, break down stigma, increase empathy. And we have so much research to show how much it contributed to just that. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think maybe just a lot of adults, and you point out politicians, perhaps in particular, mm -hmm. could learn a lot from watching Sesame mm -hmm. Street. Are there any initiatives that are not directed at children? or? Oh, well, listen, most of our work for particularly vulnerable children and families is for caregivers and children. Mm -hmm. Because um, this is another thing that I think was incredibly prescient of Joan Gansconi and her colleagues, is the reason there were celebrities and, and Muppets and humor was because she had a hunch if an adult were watching with a child, the learning would be deeper. Yeah. And now you fast forward 50 years and you have all of the neuroscience to show exactly that. The way a child learns mm -hmm. is through engagement with an adult. Mm -hmm. The first five years of life, the most rapid brain development of any other time in a child's development. And the most important thing to help a child overcome challenges and trauma and stress is more engagement with an adult. So we create content very specifically in the refugee space, in Sesame Street and communities that's designed to be the tool for the child, but the catalyst for engagement between adult and child. Mm -hmm. And and it's so important that we also be reaching those parents or caregivers to really help children in those early years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the programs are designed to sort of work either way. Like if the child well, is watching by, and I'm talking I'm talking not about the broadcast show because that's designed to be for a children's audience. So, where they could watch it by themselves. Right. But the content we do for Sesame Street and communities or for these home visits and these more targeted initiatives for yeah. particularly vulnerable communities is designed to be for the adult as well as the child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. So my last question is, which Muppet do you most identify with and why? Well, see, I should be saying one of our strong female <laughs> role models around the world, but I would have to say Grover because <laughs> I love his quirky sense of humor. Yeah. And I have a rather quirky sense of humor. So it would be Grover. <laughs> Wonderful. He seems really fun. He and, is so much fun. And optimistic too. I love Grover. Wonderful. Okay. Well, but share... don't tell Elmo or. No, this is just. Big Bird or. Yeah. Just between us okay. and yeah. this podcast. Yes. Good. Good. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much. This has been such fun, and I really appreciate you including Sesame in this conversation. Oh, well, we are honored, and thank you for Sesame and for all the work and for joining us today. Thank you. That was Sherry Rollins-Weston, president of Sesame Street Workshop. Thanks for listening today. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios.